Well, happy Sabbath, brethren. It is a wonderful privilege to be back here with you, to be able to have the opportunity to speak to you again. God has certainly given us a gorgeous Sabbath day, nice and warm and humid as well. And it certainly is a blessing to be able to have this simple thing that we have in much of the world called air conditioning, isn't it? Imagine what it would be like in here without it. Bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in Jamaica. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to spend the Sabbath with about 112 of them, and they did want me to pass on to all of you their love and their greetings. It was actually very exciting to hear from Mr. Ames just a few minutes ago that we're going back on BET. Uh, BET has excellent coverage throughout most of the Caribbean. So that's another source that we will have bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom of God to the Caribbean. I wanted to thank Mrs. Davis for that special music as well. Uh, it's a song that I very much appreciate. And actually it ties in with the message today, so I appreciate that as well. Brethren, last year for the Feast of Trumpets, a sermon was sent out on the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets by Mr. Richard Ames. It's a sermon that most of you did not hear, because he was not here. He was traveling. So if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to check it out from the tape library, the CD library, or to listen to it online. But at the beginning of Mr. Ames' sermon, he asked the question, he posed the question, what is your attitude toward Christ's return? What is your attitude toward Christ's return? And I would follow up with that. How badly do you desire Christ's return? Do you desire Christ's return with all your heart? Do you want Christ to return as soon as possible? If God the Father would allow us to decide on the date for Jesus Christ's return. How soon would you set the date? Tomorrow? Next week? Next year? Maybe three and a half years? Seven years? Ten years? When would you set the date? For those of you who would want Christ to return as soon as possible, why? Why do you want Christ to return tomorrow, if the Father would allow it? For those of you who would like to set the date of Christ's return a little bit further out, why would you like Him to delay His coming? Perhaps just a little bit. If we had to flee, if we were commanded to flee to a place of safety, a location where God will protect His people during the Great Tribulation, if we were commanded to do that next week so that the tribulation could begin almost immediately, would we be willing right now to leave it all behind? Would we be willing? Or are there a few things yet in this life that we'd like to accomplish? Brethren, my purpose today is to challenge you to consider your personal perspective on the return of Jesus Christ and to examine whether that perspective is in line with God's personal thinking. 
I'd like to give you a few things that you can do now also in order to prepare spiritually for Christ's return and to more wholeheartedly yearn for it. If you're looking for a title to the sermon today, I've entitled it, Do You Yearn for Christ's Return? Do you yearn for Christ's return? And this sermon is for everyone in the audience. It's not just for the adults. It's for you young people as well. And we'll talk about that in a few, in a few minutes. If you turn with me in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read some words of Jesus Christ when his disciples asked him how to pray. You know, they had the Son of God in their midst for roughly three and a half years, and they had the opportunity to ask him all kinds of things. Christ was the teacher come from God, as we see in the scripture, one of his titles. And so here they had him in their midst, and they said, you know, how do we pray? How should we go about this? Is there a specific way to do it? And we'll break in here in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. In this manner, therefore, pray, Christ says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So after acknowledging the great creator of all things, Jesus Christ laid out the importance of praying for God's kingdom to come to this earth. And I've got to ask myself, do I pray this every time I pray? How important is it to me? You know, the importance of the kingdom of God in one way, as we look at ourselves, we can figure out how important it is by just acknowledging or looking at how frequently we pray for it to come. If it's really important, we're going to pray that in every prayer. If it's not, we may not pray it as frequently. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read about a marriage here. Revelation chapter 19. We'll start reading in verse 6 in just a moment. We see here a marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church of God. There's one thing I want to pull out of here. I'll leave Mr. Ames to speak more about that in the future. But there's something important that we can learn from this. Revelation 19, verse 6, <clears throat> we read, And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And notice the last part of the verse here. His wife has made herself ready. His wife has made herself ready. We know that the bride of Christ is the church. Matthew chapter 25 goes into more detail on that as well. But I'd like to ask you the question. How many physical brides on their wedding day just sort of show up. You know, the wedding's at four in the afternoon, so they sleep in really late. They lounge around, you know, have a few snacks, eat a bag of potato chips, a couple bowls of ice cream, um, happen to look at the clock, oh, I've got to be there in a half an hour, throw their hair up in a ponytail, maybe put on a baseball cap, forget the makeup, maybe some sweatpants or shorts and a big baggy t-shirt and just show up at their wedding. How many brides do that? Not too many, right? 
More likely, the bride has been planning, hasn't she? For a while, maybe months, frankly, probably years, ever since she was a little girl and she dreamt of marrying Prince Charming. But she's been going through all the details, guest lists, making sure the flowers are there and the music is there and all the other pieces, the intricate details of the wedding, making sure that everything is taken care of so that everything is just perfect and just right on the wedding day. Doesn't a physical bride make herself ready? In God's church, each of us are commanded to do the same, to make ourselves ready for this most important day ahead. How well are we helping God fulfill this prophecy? I've got to look at myself in the mirror. Mr. Ruddleston in the sermonette talked about self-examination. I know I've got to examine myself. How well am I preparing for this time? How well am I preparing myself? How well are we assisting God in fulfilling this prophecy? You know, as a reminder... If Christ returns in 10 or 15 years, think about this for a moment. Virtually everyone hearing my voice will be old enough to have made a decision to be baptized. In 10 or 15 years, 20 years, everyone hearing my voice will be old enough to have made a decision to be baptized and theoretically could be changed at the first resurrection, at that seventh trumpet, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. How does that strike you, young people? This is not beyond you. This includes you. If you understand what I'm talking about, if you understand what we talk about here, God has opened your mind and He's given you an invitation to be part of something very special in the future. And so this topic applies to every one of us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. And start reading here. Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 <clears throat> was asked, What are the signs of the end of the age? How can we tell, Jesus Christ, Lord, when you are going to return. And Christ begins to go into the signs of the end of the age. Lots of things. He didn't say, you know, don't worry about prophecy. Prophecy will worry about itself. He did say, here are the signs. Here's what you can look for. Watch, therefore. Because you don't know the day or the hour, but you can read the signs. Matthew 24, we'll start reading in verse 36. We see some of the signs of the end of the age, the way society is going to be just prior to Jesus Christ's return. It says, But of that day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood... They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. What does this say about the end of the age? Well, certainly there's going to be coming a captivity. But up until a certain point, what's going to be going on? Life will go on, won't it? Marrying? Giving in marriage? Not a whole lot of worry on some level. 
This is part of why Jesus Christ says, watch. Because those that are watching are going to see the signs. They're going to see the symptoms. They're going to see government failing. They're going to see gas prices at $10 an out, uh, a gallon. They're going to see the fact that food's not available in the abundance, perhaps, that it was before. No, more, no longer do you have 10 different choices of ketchup at the grocery store. Now there might only be one or two. But for many people, life will go on, won't it? That's what this is talking about. And at the time that the ark was being built, what was going on? Noah was a preacher of righteousness, wasn't he? He was probably warning people. God doesn't bring calamity without warning people first. He's not cruel. Yet people ignored. They went on with life. They married. They gave in marriage until the doors of the ark shut and the floods came. This is a powerful admonition about the end of the age and what it will be like. Verse 40, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, another left. Verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There are signs that will be there. But we're told to be ready, to be prepared, to be looking. And those that are looking are not going to be surprised. Let's go to another statement by Jesus Christ in Luke 21. Luke 21. We'll start reading in verse 36. Luke 21, verse 36, Christ says again, watch therefore and pray always. Why? That you may be counted worthy to escape these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. This is an admonition and it's coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says and what he doesn't. He does not say, if you've got time, it would probably be good to watch. He doesn't say, if you want to, you know, keep your eyes open. If you, if you feel motivated to, do that. No, it's actually a command, isn't it, from Christ. Watch, therefore, and pray. Two different commands that you may be counted worthy to escape. God wants us in his kingdom. God does not want us to go through the great tribulation. God wants us to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the seventh trumpet when his son returns. He's called us to be part of the first fruits and to be part of this amazing plan that will begin with the first fruits. God wants us there, and that's why he commands us, pray that you may be counted worthy to escape. Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Another parable of Jesus Christ. Or a parable of Christ. Matthew chapter 13. We find here the parable of the sower. And breaking in in verse 7, we see that some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and, ch and they choked the seed. I'm going to skip over to verse 22. And I'm going to assume for a moment that many of you have read, most of you have read the parable of the sower. If you haven't, I encourage you to go back through it in more detail. 
But in verses 18 through 23, we see an explanation of the parable of the sower. Verse 22 talks about um, the thorns and what the thorns represent. It says, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. The person who hears the truth is extended a calling by God. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. It's a warning because there are those who God calls and he wants part of his body and he wants in his kingdom. Yet, for various reasons, they allow the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches to reach in and grab them and pull them away from the truth. I have a question, a question that actually all of us, including me, need to ask ourselves. What cares of the world frequently distract you? And I'm not going to say, are there cares of the world? I know my human nature. And it's the same as yours. There are cares of the world that distract us, that can easily distract us. What are the cares of the world that easily distract us? In fact, I'd like to give you a homework assignment, too, to go along with Mr. Ruddleston's. As you are considering coveting and reviewing covetousness, this actually fits in with covetousness to a point. Here's some homework for you. And again, I'm a college professor. I've got to give a little bit of homework. But I'd like you to, I'd encourage you to, after services, maybe as you talk in groups or you go out for a meal, or you're at home this evening or doing Bible study in the morning tomorrow, sit down and think and talk with some friends, with some family, meditate on your own, and make a list of cares of the world that perhaps have crept into your life. Maybe pray before you do this and ask God to help you see if there are any cares of the world that have made their way into your life. Are there any cares of this world that have a tendency to take priority in your life, perhaps even over the things of God? And only you can answer that question with God's help. What might be some of the things, the cares of the world, that could creep into your life? What might be some of the things that might distract us a little bit from focusing on yearning for Christ's return immediately? What might be some of those things that might be goals or objectives we have in our life that we really would like to accomplish before Christ returns? Yes, we want Him to come, but are there any things that you really want to happen in your life before that? That might motivate you to hope that He sort of hangs and holds off for a little bit longer. What might some of those be? Maybe financial goals? Maybe prestige or titles? Maybe finishing up school, high school, college? Another career goal? Maybe building a business? What about a job promotion or different career aspirations? What about travel plans? There's some place you'd always wanted to go, and you know you, you want Christ to return. You know, the movie came out several years ago, The Bucket List. And I've heard many of you use that phrase. This is on my bucket list. How important are the things in your bucket list? Are you willing to dump the bucket out if Christ could come tomorrow? Or are you going to hang on to the bucket? What might be some other things that you just... You want Christ to return, but you hope He delays so that you can do something. Maybe marriage. Having children. 
having grandchildren. You know, God, I want Christ to come back, but I've always wanted a grandchild. Now, these are not bad things to desire, are they? These are things that God wants us to desire. But we're talking about priorities. Years ago, as I was going to school in another church area, I developed a really good relationship with one of the leaders in the congregation, and he and his wife sort of took me in. I think maybe they felt bad for me. I was a poor graduate student. I was pretty skinny, skinnier than I am now, believe it or not. And they fed me, and they welcomed me into their home. And as the Worldwide Church of God was falling apart, and doctrine seemed to be changing almost weekly, I went to this man, and I had some questions for him. I looked up to him. He'd been in the, in the church of God for decades. Came in in the late 60s or early 70s. He was an ordained person in the congregation. And I wanted to ask him some questions. And so I was at his house one Sunday afternoon, and we were working on some kind of project in his backyard. I think he had daughters, and I was sort of a surrogate son that he could put to work in his, in his yard. And I asked him, I said, what do you think about the changes that are going on in the church? What are you going to do about them? And he looked at me, and and we're digging or, or nailing something. And he said, Scott, my job is sort of on the line right now. The company I've been working for for a long time, a couple of decades, is going under. And I've got to figure out a way to continue to make my house payments and to take care of my family. That's a real priority for me now. As you can see, I've got remodeling. I want to get done on my house. I've got a couple of daughters that I would like to get married off in a happy way. Once I get through this time of struggle, through these physical things, then I'll take time and I'll focus on this truth and make some decisions. When I heard that, and I was about 20 or 23 at that time, my, my stomach sort of dropped because I'd been around enough to know that I didn't think he was going to get to it. I got the opportunity, I had the opportunity to see him about five years later. We got together with he and his wife for lunch. I think at that time we were living across the country and we're visiting family in the region and I just called him up and I made an appointment. I said, let's get together for lunch. And so they invited me over and we were eating lunch one afternoon and talking and catching up. And as I walked into the house, the first thing he did was took me to the back of the house and showed me his new remodel and build out on the back of the house. And it was all done, and he was proud of it. And as we talked more, I learned that his daughters were married, and they were happily married. And as we talked more, I learned that, you know, he changed careers, he'd retooled, and he was in a career he was comfortable with, was happy with, and was um, solidly in. So as we're eating lunch, about halfway through lunch, the phone rang, and it was a colleague of his. And he remained on the phone for the next half hour. I hadn't seen him in five years, and he saw this guy every day of the week. And at first I thought, why is he on the phone so long as I'm talking to his wife? And then I realized, I think he knows what's coming. Or at least Satan knows what's coming, and he wants to keep this guy on the phone. Because they were still attending with the former association and going to church on Sundays when they went to church. And it became apparent to me that He never got around to answering the questions. He put them off. He let the cares of the world weigh him down to the point that he began discarding the truth of God 
He wasn't, never mind yearning for Christ's return, he wasn't even holding on to foundational pieces of the truth. And as far as I know, he still isn't. I pray that he'll return to that at some point. But we've got to be careful because cares of the world can creep in. And they can really draw us to the side. I think some of you know that. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have recently returned and we're glad to have you here. But the cares of the world are real, aren't they? You know, Philippians 2, verse 5, one of those memory scriptures, talks about, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. God wants us to put on the mind of His Son. He wants us to think like His Son. What does thinking like His Son mean when we think about yearning for the return of Christ? Let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus Christ lets us know, verse 34, what his purpose was on the earth, one of, what, what one of his major focuses, foci, was on this earth while he was here. John 4:34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Why did Christ come? Part of the reason was to finish a portion of the plan of God, to get it done. We're called to help finish the work of God too, aren't we? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God to the world and at the same time working with God to finish the work that He started inside of each and every one of us, the calling that He's put forth to us. Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. Read the words of the Apostle Paul, not only to the church at Philippi long ago, but to us today as well. Philippians 3. And verse 18. Philippians 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And the world does that. It sets its mind on earthly things. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Where is our citizenship? Where should our citizenship be? Ultimately, spiritually speaking, the thing that really matters, our citizenship is in heaven. It should be in heaven. Our focus should be that way. So, we need to have physical goals in life. We need to have them. They're what motivate us to go forward. We need to have physical goals that fit with godly goals. And friends and family and the right kind of success is part of that. But these goals must not be so important that we would want Christ to delay His coming so that we can accomplish them. How can we truly ensure... And since that we sincerely yearn for Christ's return, what can we do to make sure that beyond everything else, we yearn for Christ's return? What is priority number one for a Christian? Matthew 6:33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God's going to take care of all of the rest of it is what the context of that scripture talks about. How can we help ensure that the cares of this world do not distract us from focusing on the things God wants us to focus on? both young people and those who are not as young as they used to be. 
going to give you three points this afternoon, three actions you can take to hopefully increase the zeal with which you yearn for the return of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we can all do is to see the world for what it really is. To see the world for what it really is. You know, Dr. Meredith has focused a lot in recent messages on what's going on in the world around us and how we don't need to be part of that. We need to come out of that. The most recent Tomorrow's World magazine, the 2012 cover, just about every article in the issue focuses on the problems with the world today and how we need to be different. I want to focus on a specific area of the world today to help you see the world even more for what it really is. Do we see the world for what it really is? Brethren, how clearly can you see the pain and suffering in the world around you? How badly do you return for how badly do you yearn for Christ's return in order to benefit the people in the world that are hurting? Do you want the pain and suffering in the world to continue just a little until you reach your personal goals? And I think all of us would say, of course not. But I want to paint a bit clearer picture of what's going on in the world. Let's go to Philippians chapter or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians. Chapter 4, another letter by the Apostle Paul here, written long ago to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Yes, there's many in the world who haven't been called to understand it yet, but that will come. Verse 4, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. Christ, or Jesus Christ has allowed Saint the devil to be in charge of this earth for about 6,000 years. The Father has allowed that. And Satan's perspective is to deceive. He doesn't want people to come into the truth. He doesn't want people who are called to hold on to the truth. He wants us to give it up, to be distracted by the cares of the world. And he wants the people in the world to, to hurt, doesn't he? We heard in the sermonette how Satan tried to take the throne of God. Well, Satan can't very well attack God the Father. He's bigger and stronger in every single way. So if you can't get to the person or the being that you really hate, what do you do? What does the world do? You go after their family, don't you? You go after the ones that look like him and you cause hurt. And you cause pain. And that's what Satan has done in this world. He's gone after the people of the world. He goes after us as God's called ones. But remember, everyone in the world is made in the image of God. With the same potential, ultimately, down the line. Satan is happiest when human beings hurt. So when we look around the world and see the world for what it is, one of the things that can motivate us to really yearn for Christ's return even more is to focus just a little bit on the hurt. Question for you. And I'd like to see a show of hands in just a minute. How many of you, before you came to services this afternoon, had a comfortable feeling in your stomach? And were, had enough food in your stomach? Or last night before you went to bed? Went to bed with a full stomach? Anybody? I did. We had a very nice meal last night. 
got up and my daughter made breakfast this morning. And it was really good. And we enjoyed that. Any idea how many people in the world today are hungry? About a billion. There's about seven billion people on the earth today and about a billion of them are hungry. Now, most of us understand what hungry is. We fast at least once a year on the Day of Atonement. And you know what it's like right before the sun goes down and you have that grinding in your stomach. And if the sermon goes one minute over time, it's hard because all you're thinking about is food. And if you fasted for more than one day, you know what that second night is like when you can't sleep because your stomach is grinding in the middle of the night and hurting. Brethren, a billion people... A billion people are hungry in the world today. According to UNICEF, about 22,000 children die every day due to poverty, and in big part, that is hunger. About 22,000 people die every day due to poverty. Let's translate that. My background is in statistics and epidemiology, and in the past in my classrooms, I've tried to make these numbers stick and make more sense than just throwing numbers at people. What does that mean, 22,000 children die every day due to poverty? That means in the time that it takes to deliver this sermon, about 1,000 children will die. In fact, about 500 already have. Let that sink in. As many as 12 million people in the Horn of Africa have been in danger of starvation. And you saw the press last summer, a lot of the... The famine is continuing, but it's old news now, so we don't hear a whole lot about it. Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 4. How does it make you feel when you think about these things? And no, I don't want to make you cry, but I want you to think. Because so many of us hearing this today live in the lap of luxury, relatively speaking. The lap of luxury. We go home, we open our refrigerators, there's plenty to eat. If we don't have enough, we go to the grocery store. In many of our developed nations, we have welfare programs that if you can't afford to eat, they give you a card, and it takes care of it. At least you have food, and at least you have shelter. And air conditioning when it's hot, and heat when it's cold. Many in the world don't have that. I think you know that, but I want to remind you of that. Ezekiel chapter 9. God, speaking through the prophet here, made a profound observation in verse 4. Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. The Lord spoke to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. Yes, this was talking historically of a time when Jerusalem was falling because of the idolatry they'd gone into, and God said, you're going to go into captivity. But we know, too, that this is a dual prophecy, and it looks forward. And it reminds us, this time will come again. And God says, put a mark on, protect the people who sigh and who cry for the abominations that are happening around the world. When we look at the world around us, and we look at the suffering that goes on in sub-Saharan Africa, in North Korea, in other places, in most cases where there are dictators. They're living like fat cats and their people are starving to death. How does that make us feel? And we're, so many of us, 
living with plenty. I've been in homes of brethren in many different parts of the world and in some very challenging areas of the world. And you know, in even some of the most challenged areas, God's people have plenty to eat. There's a promise there, isn't there? The righteous shall not go hungry. Yet so many others do go hungry. Romans chapter 8. Let's look at this passage. This is a powerful one for me. And as we think about the coming Feast of Tabernacles that's coming up in just a few months. This chapter of Romans pushes forward to that time. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> we'll start reading in verse 19. It says, For the earnest expectations of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of whom? The children of God. The sons of God. Those who are changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye who will rule on the earth with Christ and usher in peace and prosperity like never before. Verse 20, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into a glorious liberty of whom? Us, as we return with Christ. A glorious liberty that will liberate creation and not just starving human beings. Not just starving human beings. There was a recent study done by the UN, the United Nations, that looked at habitat destruction, and they made some extrapolations statistically. And they estimated that when looking at vertebrate animals, at plants and insects, there are about 137 species that disappear from the face of the earth daily. Now, critics have, have hit that number and said, well, that's way overestimating. Well, the United Nations also has a red list of vertebrate species that have gone extinct since 1500. This is a little bit more tangible because we can list out the species that existed and that don't exist anymore. Vertebrate species. Um, since 1500, in about the last 500 years, 784 species have become extinct. Creation groans in travail. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The world needs Christ's return, doesn't it? You know, the last couple trips I've made to the Caribbean is I, I always get a window seat. I like to sit by the window on an airplane, particularly when I fly over the Caribbean. Because in many cases, you can see all the way to the ocean floor through the clear water. And some of you have had that experience. The last couple trips I've made, I look down and I'm amazed at how many little oil slicks are all over the Caribbean from the north end to the south end. And they're not huge, but you can see the oil all over the place since the Deepwater Horizon incident a couple of years ago. Thousands of miles away from the Deepwater Horizon site, you see oil all over the place. Just off the coast of Miami, you see the oil. It really is amazing to look down and see. Matthew chapter 23. What was Christ's perspective about the world that he lived in? Matthew chapter 23. And verse 37. 
Right before Jesus Christ died, he made this observation. Verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Many of you have seen that, haven't you? A hen or some kind of a bird sort of coddling its babies under its wings. Christ and the Father programmed the bird, didn't they? They programmed the bird with that instinct. Where did the instinct come from? We got the mind of Christ right here. How much I wanted to hold you close to me and protect you and keep you safe, he says. But you killed the prophets. He wouldn't let it happen. As we try and put on more of the, the mind of Christ, do we have that kind of a perspective with the world around us? Are we willing to look? How frequently do we consider the plight and the living conditions of billions around the globe as we live in the relative lap of luxury? And we don't need to feel bad about that. God has blessed us. We should never feel bad about God's blessings. We should be grateful. But we need to see them in context, too. I've been in homes of your brethren in different parts of the world, as some of you have. Homes that have mud brick walls, dirt floors, one room that the whole family sleeps in, a room that's smaller than most of your bedrooms. They sleep in hammocks, thatched roofs, no electricity, no screens, no running water, community outhouse. And again, these people are blessed because they have plenty to eat. But think about that. I returned from one of these trips and was sharing with the children, my children, who each have a bedroom to their own, that their bedrooms are as big as these people's homes. How does it make us feel? We can't take for granted, which is easy to do. It is easy to do, and I do it myself. We can't take for granted what we have. You know what the median... Income, family income for four people was in the year 2007. I wasn't able to find more recent statistics. 1,700 U.S. dollars, 1,700 U.S. dollars was the median family income in 2007. <clears throat> the average family income, or excuse me, the poverty level, the poverty level in the United States is about $22,000. About 12 times what the median income is worldwide for families. In Great Britain, and I've changed the, all of this into U.S. dollars, it's about $23,000 per family. In Australia, it's about $21,000. New Zealand, $22,000. In Canada, over $30,000 for a family of four. And the, and the median income in the world is $1,700. The World Bank says that people are under the poverty threshold if they earn less than $1.25 U.S. per day. Just to give you an idea of where we mesh with the rest of the world. This world needs Christ's return as soon as possible. Brethren, I encourage you to let some statistics like this from time to time sink in even a little bit more. We may be comfortable in our homes and our lives and have full bellies, and we may live in relative peace and safety, but there are billions also made in the image of God with the same potential that we have. 
who are suffering as we are comfortable. As we try and motivate ourselves to yearn for Christ's return even more, brethren, I encourage you, look at the world around you and see it for what it really is. This is not our Father's world. Yes, He created the world itself, but this is Satan's world. And we see it all over the place. What's another thing that we can do to hopefully yearn for Christ's return even more? The second thing we can do is to learn to trust God even more completely. Learn to trust God more completely. I think we all admit we have trust in God. But trust is key. Do you ever fear that some of your goals or desires won't come true? Because Christ is going to return too soon. I was born in Pasadena, California in the very early 70s. And as I was growing up as a young boy, I heard that Christ was going to return, and I figured He would return before I ever got to high school. I knew I'd never go to college or get married or have children. It's all happened. I had certain fears, I had certain concerns. I wondered, would I ever get married? You know, I was dating as the Worldwide Church of God was coming apart. And even with all of the people, you know, I look back at my notes, my, my church notes, feast notes, not long ago, 1991, we had 165,000 people attend the Feast of Tabernacles. 165,000. Now, from the point of a young man in the church, that's lots of ladies who are eligible. But as the church began to come apart, I quickly realized, and I knew lots of ladies, uh, had been to camp, had visited Ambassador College campus, uh, traveled around different church areas. I knew lots of people. And pretty soon I realized there was nobody on the horizon because I had set for myself a goal. I was going to marry somebody who was deeply converted. And when I looked around in the church at that time, I couldn't find hardly anyone who was converted. In my age range, potential age range that I was looking in. And I began seriously realizing, you know, maybe it's God's will for me not to get married. Maybe I'll go into the kingdom not married. <clears throat> that didn't work quite that way. Um, God brought someone into my life. But the reality is I think we all face the question, will I get married? Am I going to have that opportunity? God wants us to be married. God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2. He says it's not good for a man or a woman to be alone. Yet, what are we looking at? You know, I've counseled people for baptism recently, people who are single. We talk about what we're looking at when we commit to God's way of life and what it means to count the cost. And one of the challenges I've posed to people that I've counseled for baptism recently, and some of them might hear this and they can tell you it's true, is if it were God's will for you not to get married and be single between now and the kingdom, would you be willing to do it? We've got to ask the question. What's most important? Trusting God is key, though. Trusting God is key, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. <clears throat> 
if we're concerned about something like this or not reaching some of our other goals, we're not strange, we're not weird, we're human. These are human thoughts and human ideas. But remember, we've all been called to cease thinking like physical human beings. God has called us to something else. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 18. A powerful scripture regarding trusting God. I had a personal trial a number of years ago and was struggling with something and I happened to be driving in the car one day. It was a long, long day of visiting. I was gone about 15 hours, I think. And in that long day of visiting, there was a lot of driving, and I happened to listen to three sermons. And the three sermons I happened to pull out were by Mr. Ames. And I'd been praying that God would help me through this struggle that I was having. And in each of those sermons, Mr. Ames used this scripture. I felt like God was clubbing me over the head with the scripture, and I was missing something. And so I got home that night, and as I did frequently uh, when I got home late, parked the car and went for a walk in the neighborhood. And I was wrestling with God that night, and I said, God, I've been struggling with this challenge, and I think you've put the answer in front of me. It has something to do with the scripture, but I can't figure it out. And I'm not going to go to bed until you give me an answer. I was thinking of Jacob and wrestling with the angel. And I knew God wanted me to figure it out. And finally, I was able to put two and two together. It just it struck me. First uh, John four and verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Perfect love casts out fear. And what I had to realize for myself is that. In this situation that I was struggling with, I had done everything I needed to do. I had done the Christian thing. But I was still trying to solve the problem. And what I was lacking was a, of a um, complete trust in God. I didn't love Him enough to trust Him to take care of a situation for me. And I had an aha that morning about 12.30 as I was walking around our neighborhood in North Florida. Perfect love casts out fear. Do we trust God enough to believe that he totally has our best interests in mind? Do we have enough faith in him and in his plan to realize that even if we are unable to accomplish some of our human goals, the life that God has planned for us in his kingdom will be far better and far more rewarding than the human life we live today can offer. Romans 8. Let's go back there. We read from verse 19 a minute ago. But let's read verse 18 now. Romans 8 and verse 18. Paul made the observation, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul was saying, you know, the trials of today, the things I find difficult today, when I look at what is coming, the things of today pale into insignificance. Because what God has in mind is so much better. God made us, didn't he? He created our lives. He created the processes in our lives. He created marriage. He created the family. He wants us to be successful. Christ came so that we can have life in this life and have it more abundantly. Yet, God has something even greater planned today. The life today is just a foretaste of how awesome things are going to be in his kingdom. Psalm chapter 62 
Psalm 62, the psalmist is musing on the importance of trusting God. And we can have absolute trust in Him. He will not deny us something special in this life. He's not going to take us out of this life and have us take a step down into His kingdom with lesser goals and lesser opportunities. No. <laughs> Scripture says His thoughts are so far above us, it's like the heavens above the earth. And what He's got planned for us is really probably beyond what we can even comprehend as physical human beings. Psalm 62 in verse 8 says, Trust Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge to us. Doesn't He know what our desires are before we even ask? And in fact, in many cases, He built the desires into us. He's not going to take away from us something we desire. He's got something bigger, more important in mind for us. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Back to the words of Christ and the promises of Jesus Christ. Sermon on the Mount here. Christ talking to His disciples. Matthew chapter 7. And verse 7, we'll start in here. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Good question to ask. How many loving parents, when their child comes and asks something of them, especially something the parents want them to ask, is going to give them a stone? My son comes up and asks, you know, Dad, I want to be a better son. What can I do to change? I'm going to give him a stone or the next thing, a serpent? No, I want to give him all kinds of things because he's doing what I would want to see him do. And God says, for you who are human to give something good, how much more me? God wants to give us good. We're his kids made in his image with the potential to be in his family. If we've been baptized, we have an earnest, a down payment of his Holy Spirit in us. A ticket to the kingdom of God. If we'll just hang on to it and not sell that ticket to somebody else or give it away. Brethren, if Christ returns prior to our accomplishing some of our human goals, we must remember that inheriting the kingdom of God is not a penalty, but it's a blessing with unimaginable results. A final point, a final thing that we can do. The third thing we can do to yearn for Christ's return even more is to catch a clearer vision of the kingdom. Catch a clearer vision of the kingdom. <clears throat> I've had people make the comment to me, you know, I've been in the church for decades, and the kingdom of God just isn't real to me. I understand intellectually, but I just can't see it. Brethren, to make it real, we've got to seek it. We've got to, to look for it. We've got to eke it out. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to go through this briefly and refer you to some resources. Isaiah chapter 11, one of a couple of very, very exciting passages of Scripture that give us a glimpse and a vision of what is to come. Isaiah 11 and starting in verse 9, I'm going to skip through the lion and the lamb passage. We could dwell on that all day. And uh, if you come back in a few months to the Feast of Tabernacles, we will dwell on that most of 
probably at least one church service. Isaiah 11, verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Chew on that for a minute. What will the earth be like when they don't hurt or destroy in all God's kingdom, His holy mountain? Revelation chapter 21 talks about a time when there's no more hurt or sorrow or crying or pain. What will it be like when there is no more crying over pain? The only tears... As Dr. Meredith frequently opens up his opening night message at the feast with, will be tears of joy. Can you imagine that? We've all cried lots of tears in our life. Tears of pain. We've hurt. And we've hurt to the point emotionally where it hurts physically. What will it be like when no one in the world has to experience that again? No one has to witness death anymore. No one has to suffer anymore. No one has to starve anymore. No one has to burn to death anymore. Let your mind go with some of this. How real is that time, brethren? You know what goes on in this world around you, around all of us. The time that God is going to bring and usher in with the return of His Son is incredible. An incredible change. Those of you who've been to the feast in the past and taken notes, I encourage you, go back over your notes from the Feast of Tabernacles from time to time. Many of us who go to the feast at large feast sites hear live messages for every message at the feast. Count that a blessing. We have feast sites all around the world who don't have live messages and they hear pre-recorded taped messages. And not that that's a drawback. But it is nice to have a person you can touch and shake hands with and give a hug to. But because many of you have gone to feasts where there are live messages, you've missed a lot of incredible feast messages that are available to you. If you haven't listened to the pre-recorded feast messages that are available on the website or in the church library, I encourage you to check them out. You'll hear messages from people you don't normally hear from that can help get you excited even more about the reality of the coming kingdom of God. Let it motivate you to yearn even more for Christ's return. As you think more about the world tomorrow, and contrast that with Satan's world today, 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4. For a final scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. God has a crown of righteousness that he's going to place on the heads of his saints who will be changed into the rulers in the kingdom of God, the kings and queens, if you will, of the kingdom of God, the priests of the kingdom of God. He wants us to be there. He's got a role for us to play as leaders, change agents 
who when they are changed, the earth will cry out for glory. Because it will finally be released from the tyranny that Satan has put it under. These are people in the world who live through the tribulation who will come and say, Blessed are the feet of those who come bearing the gospel of good news. Do you realize what that means? Blessed are the feet? These people will be down in front of us, not daring to look us in the eye because we'll be members of the family of God. This is what we're called to, and not to subjugate, but to raise people up, to take them out of the tyranny that they're living in today and have lived in over 6,000 years of history. These people will be called, the Scripture says here. They'll have the opportunity. And these are the ones who have loved His appearing. A couple of different translations for the last part of that verse. The Lasma, Lamsa translation says, to those who eagerly await His appearance. The Weymouth translation says, to those who have loved the thought of His appearing. The Amplified New Testament says, to those who have yearned for and welcomed his return or his appearing. Brethren, how powerfully do we yearn for Christ's return? What will we do individually in order to develop a more fervent, more heartfelt yearning and desire for Christ to come as soon as is possible? The reality is that if we do not yearn for Christ's return immediately... It's probably for two reasons, one of two or possibly both. Number one, we're not aware of and regularly thinking about the evils and atrocities in the world around us, most probably because we're distracted by the society we live in, and frankly, some of the blessings that we are blessed to have. The other is that the world tomorrow, tomorrow's world, is not real yet. When we see the reality of the kingdom and contrast it with the world today, we're not going to want to go on one more day in the world we live in. I encourage you to put to practice the points we've talked about today. Put to practice these points even more. Number one, take more time to see the world for what it really is. And come to an understanding of why we really need God's kingdom to come. Watch the news. Read the headlines. Consider and meditate on some of the statistics you hear. But don't dwell on these too long. We need to learn from them. We need to be motivated from them. Hopefully it will motivate us to pray more deeply. Thy kingdom come. But at the same time, we don't want to become depressed. And if you dwell too much on these things, that can happen. We need to find the balance. The second thing is to learn to trust God and His plan even more completely. Trust Him. He has got an awesome plan for us. He has a place for us in His kingdom. He wants us to be there, and He's not going to cut our opportunities short. He's going to magnify them when He comes. And number three, watch, or excuse me, work to catch a clear vision of the kingdom of God. As God's kingdom becomes more real, and we see the drastic contrast between Satan's world today and God's world tomorrow, we won't be able to wait for His kingdom to come. Brethren, God has called us to inherit His kingdom upon the return of Christ. God's kingdom will be far greater and more rewarding and more peace-bringing than our human minds can probably even comprehend. 
We need, and the world needs, Christ's return. The setup of his kingdom and the banishment of the God of this age. And this needs to occur absolutely as soon as our Father will let it. Brethren, do all you can to learn to yearn for Christ's return even more every day. Make whatever changes in your life and your way of thinking you need to so that you develop a more intense, more heartfelt yearning for Christ's return in the establishment of His kingdom on this earth. As parents, it's important that we help our children develop this yearning as well. Brethren, it's time to bring this sermon to a close. About a thousand children have just died. This world desperately needs Christ's return. I encourage you, yearn for it with all of your being.